Good evening and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence. We're thankful for a beautiful day, the opportunity to be together. We're thankful for those who identified with the work here today. And we hope and pray that that is a prelude for many others to come. And we appreciate so much the many visitors that come our way. It is our prayer that you would find the church here friendly and that you would leave here having been glad to be with us. And we want you to know that if you're looking for a church home, we want you. We want you to come and to be a part of the work here at Olive Branch. We're going to be looking tonight at Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, the passage that Tanner read for us a moment ago. As we think about the theme, a pyramid of praise. The last two verses of Ephesians chapter 3 could be called a word of praise. And really when you look at these last two verses, there's a lot of information packed in these two very short passages of scripture. And so what I want us to do is look at these two verses and make two very, what I believe to be very important points about God. First of all, I want you to think with me as we study chapter three, the greatness of God. And really we're gonna be talking about the unprecedented greatness of God. And then we wanna think about the glory of God his unparalleled glory. And so as we look at the last two verses, and I would mention very quickly, the book of Ephesians is one of Paul's prison epistles. And if you have not spent a lot of time in the book of Ephesians, I would encourage you to do so. I think it's one of the greatest books in the New Testament. It was written in about A.D. 62. And Paul, in these six chapters, highlights the great blessings that we enjoy in Christ. The phrase, in Christ, or its equivalent, is found some 35 times in this book. And over and over again, the Apostle Paul hammers home the great blessings, the, the spiritual treasures that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. And too many times, those of us who belong to the body of Christ, we fail to, to maximize or we fail to emphasize the great blessings the spiritual prosperity that we enjoy in Christ. And so when you read the book of Ephesians, Paul, in a very succinct way, strives to make known those great blessings. And so in verses 20 and 21, you have, to some extent, Paul pouring out his heart to God, the fountain of all blessings. So let's begin by talking for a minute or two about the unprecedented greatness of God. When you think about God, what comes to mind? I think about somebody who is superior in every way. Do you know anyone like God? I don't know anyone like God. I've never met anyone like God. As a matter of fact, when I began to read in the Old and New Testaments about the nature, the character of God, I stand in awe, and we ought to because we're talking about a great being, the greatness of Almighty God, the superiority of God. Now sometimes we use the term great in a very loose way. We talk about somebody who is a great athlete or a great scholar or a great human being. We understand, we understand what's being said, but when we talk about the greatness of God, what is it that makes God 
so great? Why is God a being that is worthy of our praise and adoration as well as service? Let me just call attention to a couple of things. First of all, I want you to think with me about the greatness of God's ability. Listen, if you would, to what Paul said. Now, to him who is able, God is able. God is a being full of abilities, and those abilities are on display for the human family. God has demonstrated his greatness, his power, in many, many ways. Let me just cite for you some of the ways that God has demonstrated his great abilities in days gone by and continues to demonstrate his abilities. First, think about creation. God is the one who spoke this world into being or existence. The psalmist in Psalm 33 said, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast in Psalm 33, 6 and verse 9. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 at verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John tells us in chapter 1 at verse 3, in his narrative of the gospel, that Jesus was the agent by which the world was made. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So Jesus is the one that made all things in Colossians chapter 1. And by the way, the book of Colossians is another one of Paul's prison epistles. And when you read the book of Colossians, one of the things that you'll see is Paul exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said in Colossians 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him were all things made, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were made by him. And in him all things consist. You see, Jesus is the one that brought this world into existence. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 1 sets forth the superiority of Jesus over angelic beings. And in verse 10 he said, And you, O Lord, have in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. So God is able. His abilities demonstrated in the created universe. Look at our universe, the splendor of our universe. When you step back and look at the universe and mankind, and God is the one who created us in his own image and likeness, you're left standing in awe, aren't you? That, that is a demonstration, a manifestation of God's great ability. A second demonstration of his great ability, revelation. Back in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about how that by revelation, God made known unto him the mystery of his will. And he said he took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words. Whereby when you read, you may understand his knowledge in the mystery of Christ. God is the one that has given unto us the 66 books that we call the Bible. 
I want to ask you a question. Do you know of any book that compares to Scripture? Can you think of any book that is superior to the book of all books? I'm not sure how many books have been written by man down through the years. But in, in light of all of the books and everything that has ever been written by mankind, everything pales in comparison to this book that we call the Bible. Now we talk about the inspiration of Scripture. Every word in this book is inspired of God. Paul said all Scripture, every Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Peter said that God has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that we need to know about life and godliness, God has revealed. In that same chapter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter said that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were born along by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired. Jesus said in John 16, 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. We have all truth today. Everything that we need to know about how to live and serve Almighty God has been given unto us in Scripture. Now you look at the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament. Look at the unity and the harmony of those 39 books. And note how they complement the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. The Old Testament pointing to the coming of Christ, the New Testament affirming that Christ has come. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. That's inspiration. Mankind doesn't have the ability to put together a book like this. But God does. Not only does God have that ability, God has demonstrated that ability. This book that you hold in your hands that is called the Bible, it's unlike any other book. We talk about the greatness of God's ability. It's, it's on display right here. It's called Scripture, God's holy word. And then there is a third manifestation of God's great ability. And that's in the realm of salvation. Now, we talk about creation and the fact that we are created beings. And I believe God created us so that he might enjoy fellowship with us. So that he might enjoy communion with us. We are said to be his creation, his children. And because we are God's children, he loves us. And God has created us for a purpose. But we talk about creation and God creating us and then revelation. God has given us his revelation so that we might understand how to enjoy a relationship with him so that we might know how to enjoy fellowship with him. And all of that really takes us to this third very key point, and that is salvation. When you think about salvation and the importance of salvation, did you know that when God laid, well, when God devised this redemptive plan, 
that he had you in mind? Just think about that. Before God ever laid the foundation of the world, before he ever spoke this world into existence, he had you in mind. And so he is the great architect of this redemptive plan. Now, the basis for this redemptive plan is his great love. In Ephesians 2 at verse 4, Paul said, But God, who is great or rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Now you go back to chapter 1. And in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul talks about how God has given unto us all spiritual blessings. And those spiritual blessings reside in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse 3. He goes on to say in verses 3 and 4 that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to adoption by Jesus Christ to himself. The means by which God would reconcile fallen humanity to himself was through Jesus, his son. That plan was in place before the world began. John in the Revelation in chapter 13 verse 8 speaks of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6 Paul would say to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. In verse 7 he said in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now think for a moment about the gospel. The death, burial, burial and resurrection of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about the mighty power of Almighty God. He said, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. How important is the resurrection of Jesus? Well, without the resurrection, Paul said, our preaching would be vain, our faith is vain. He said, we'd still be in sin. But God raised him from the dead. Paul said in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Christ paid the ultimate price for our sins. That he was raised for our justification. So, God has taken the means to redeem us, to save us. And so in chapter two, Paul emphasizes the grace of Almighty God. Down in verse 12, he speaks of the relationship of those outside covenant with God. He said they're without hope and without God in the world. But then verse 13 he said, but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. We talk about the price of our redemption. It cost Jesus his blood. It cost him his life. It cost God his only beloved son. His only begotten son. Down in verse 16 Paul said that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. So, God is able. The greatness of God's ability reflected in creation, revelation, and salvation. If you miss salvation, you've missed everything. The Hebrew writer asked the question in the long ago, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? God's salvation is great. It's great because of the one who authored it. It is great because of the one who executed it. 
It's great because we can be the recipients of God's salvation. Now I want you to think with me in the second place. Not only do we read of the greatness of God's ability, but the greatness of God's abundance. Look at what he says in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. We talk about this pyramid of praise. And the writer here is speaking of God. To him, verse 20. Verse 21, to him. We're talking about Almighty God and the greatness of his abundance. You ever thought about the abundance of blessings God has bestowed on us? Let me just cite for you some of the things that we enjoy because of God. Number one, grace. One of the great themes in Ephesians chapter two. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast or glory. Verses eight and nine. Think for a moment about the application of God's grace. Back in chapter five of the book of Romans, Paul said, but God commendeth his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 20, here's what Paul said. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. Let me ask this question. Did Paul know anything about the grace of God? Do you think Paul understood the application of God's grace? Think about the emphasis of Paul's writings on grace. What better person to write about the grace of God than Paul? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, Paul said, Paul speaks there of being thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ for the exceeding abundance of his grace. Paul had experienced the grace of God. As a recipient of that grace, Paul could, could well understand what he was writing in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, when he said, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. You can't out-sin God's grace. When you and I think about the vast depth of God's grace, here's the apostle Paul. He had been a murderer. He had persecuted those who were members of the body of Christ. And yet he was instructed to arise and be baptized, wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He did that. Every sin washed away. Now the Hebrew writer said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Here is the apostle Paul. He has been an enemy of the cause of Christ and now converted. And he could talk about the exceeding abundance of God's grace. In Ephesians 2, he talks about the riches of God's grace and kindness which he's shown toward us through Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what. There are a lot of people in our world that are mired. They are literally mired in a life of sin and unrighteousness. And they feel like they are unworthy of the love of God and the grace of God. There are some that have the idea that they are beyond the scope of redemption. Not so. As a matter of fact, 
whatever the sin, God has the ability to forgive. That's a great message. So when we talk about the greatness of God's abundance, to know that his grace, as we sing, reaches me. I think Paul, I think Paul could have identified with that song in many, many ways. We talk about the grace of God. And then there is the goodness of God. The psalmist in Psalm 31 at verse 19 talks about the great goodness of Jehovah God. I want to ask you a question. Do you know anyone like God in the realm of goodness? Do you know anyone like God that has blessed you immeasurably? I don't know anyone like God. When I think about all that God has done and all that God continues to do on our behalf, shouldn't we stand in awe of him? Shouldn't we be grateful for all that he does and all he continues to do? Think for a moment about the, the privilege of prayer. We talk about grace and the privilege of prayer as a child of God. Peter said the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. To know that you have the ear of Almighty God. There are some people in our world today that have access to world leaders. They can pick up the telephone and talk to leaders all over the globe, all around the globe. Let me tell you what, you can trump that because as a child of God, you have access to the throne room of grace. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 4, Let us therefore draw boldly unto the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You ever, have you ever met somebody and talked to them and maybe they're trying to sell you something or offer a service? And so before leaving, they pull out a business card and hand it to you. And they say, if you ever need me, call me. God says to his people, if you need me, call me, doesn't he? God says to his people, I'm there for you. Let me tell you what, that is goodness the goodness of God. And then, there's a third thing that I think about, and that is his guidance. To know that I have Almighty God guiding me through this world. Can you imagine trying to solo in this life, in this world? Jeremiah said, it's not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. Solomon the wisest man of his day said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not under your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Now go back to Revelation for a moment. The ability of God. God has given us his word which will safely guide us home, won't it? The psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. In light of that statement, I think about the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, 161, when he said, my heart stands in awe of your word. God has given us a roadmap to follow. And so he's guiding us 
through this life. I think about it as providential care. My well-being placed in the hands of the creator of the universe. And then there's a fourth thing. We talk about the greatness of God's abundance. What about his guardianship? Think for a moment about what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, In nothing be anxious. He said, But in everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We have God protecting, guarding us, don't we? I like the words of David in Psalm 18. When David said in the long ago, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. And then he said, speaking of God, you are my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, in whom I will trust. I want to ask this question. When you think about when you think about somebody that means a lot to you in this life, somebody that stood by you through thick and thin, you ever think of that person as a rock? You ever heard somebody say, he or she has been my rock? They have stood beside me the whole way? Here is David, and David is writing in the long ago, and he's saying about God, he is my rock. He's my fortress. What about a fortress? The enemy's on the outside and the good guys, as we like to think of, think of them, are on the inside. And David is saying, God is my fortress. He's protecting me. He's my guard. So we enjoy guardianship with God. Now I want you to think with me in the second place about the unparalleled glory of God. And this has to do with his divine splendor. Listen again to what Paul said in verse 20. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Three things very quickly. Number one, the place of God's glory. Where is God glorified? By whom is God glorified? Listen to what he said. To him be glory in the church. The church exists to bring glory to Almighty God, doesn't it? As a member of the body of Christ, we exist to glorify God. Now, if God is glorified through the church, what does that say to us? About number one, the worship of the church. When you think about worshiping Almighty God and that we are members of the church and that God is glorified through the church, what's that say about our corporate assembly? Does it not say to us that we're on holy ground? The reason we are on holy ground is not because this building is holy, but because we are in the presence of God. Did you know that right now we are in the presence of the Almighty Creator? 
redeemer and sustainer of heaven and earth. He is here with us. Now sometimes people take a very flippant attitude toward worship. And sometimes if I didn't know better, I'd think I was at a carnival the way some people act in worship. Worship is a sacred assembly. The psalmist said, oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Sometimes there is a lot of needless running in and out of the worship services. Sometimes people don't think about those around them during worship. Listen, we are here to glorify God. I can't glorify God and have my mind attuned to what's going on in worship if people are distracting me, nor can you. And so we are in the presence of Almighty God. And we are here to glorify him. We're not here to exchange notes with one another. We're not here to read text messages back and forth. We're not here to play with our iPhone. We are here to worship Almighty God. That's our purpose. If the church exists to glorify God, what does that say about the work of the church, our work for God. Paul said in Ephesians 2.10 that we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The works that we engage in on a daily basis, on a regular basis, are not done for personal gain. In other words, we're not doing it so that other people will look at us and talk about how great we are but rather the works that we engage in as members of the body of Christ, they're done for a purpose, and that is to glorify God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The things that we do collectively, individually, are done to bring honor and glory to God. When we help people financially, benevolently, when we assist people in whatever capacity, we do that to the glory of God. When we reach out to people who are lost and dying in sin, we do that to the glory of God. When we teach and edify one another, we do that to the glory of God. But everything that we do in the sphere of work is done for God's glory. And then what does it say about the walk of the church? Paul said in Ephesians 5, walk in love even as Christ also loved us. In Ephesians 5 verse 8, Paul said, you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Do you live with the intent of bringing honor and glory to God? Whatever your lot may be in this life, you got a job, do it to the glory of God. Are you a student? Do it to the glory of God. Are you a good neighbor? Do it to the glory of God. Whatever you do, that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So, the place of God's glory. And then note, if you would, secondly, the person of God's glory. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. 
Jesus came to this earth and did what? He came to glorify God, didn't he? In John 17, verse 4, Jesus said to God the Father in his prayer before going to the cross, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus glorified God, and we are God's people, aren't we? We follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And so we seek to glorify God. And then very quickly, the permanency of his glory. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. The glory of God is not fleeting. It's not transitory. It's not something that's here today and gone tomorrow, but rather it is through all ages, throughout all ages, world without end. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, there's an interesting passage of Scripture. John said, the bride has made herself ready. At some point in time in the future known only to God, Jesus will come for his church. And those of us who belong to the body of Christ, we will all be numbered among the redeemed of all ages and we'll be in heaven. And God will be glorified forevermore, ceaselessly. I can't wrap my mind around that, but I know it's a fact. In closing, what about your life? Are you glorifying God? When you look at verses 20 and 21, you have a pyramid of praise. Our lives ought to be filled with praise for him who died for us. I appreciate so much your kind attention tonight. I know I've gone over. wasn't intentional, I promise you, but I did. Seems like I do that a lot, but I did tonight. But in closing, I want to say, if you're not a Christian, would you consider becoming a child of God? Would you consider making the greatest decision you'll ever make in this life, and that is to become a child of the living God. Here's what you need to do. First, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. And then repent of your sins, Acts 2, 38. Confess his name before others, Acts chapter 8, verse 37. Be immersed in a watery grave of baptism, Acts 22, 16. Every sin will be washed away. And then be faithful until death. God will give you the crown of life, Revelation 2 at verse 10. If you're here, maybe your life is not what it ought to be. There's hope for you. You can come home. Could we pray with you and for you? And God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.